welcome to Carmel Presbyterian Church's podcast channel. Open up a Bible or just listen in. We hope this week's message is a blessing to you. Hi, good morning. It's my radio voice. Anyone else a little tired this morning? Got some rings around my eyes. Uh, I am not a morning person, if you know anything about me. So the cal- this is the day on the calendar that I constantly dread. Didn't help also that Amanda Chase and I were on a 12-hour day trip with middle schoolers yesterday. So, um, yeah, well, we're doing good, though. No, seriously, I'm excited. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited for the text that we have this morning. Excited to dig in. Um, and if you would, just bow our heads. Let's pray real quick before we dig in. Father, I thank you that we get to be together as a church family this morning, praising your name. God, I pray that as I, I give the message that I've, do, that I've prepared, that it's filtered by your Holy Spirit. God, let the words of truth sink deep into our hearts. Let the words of error fall away. God, may I be lessened this morning and may you be magnified. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so if you would, please open to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21 that Luke just read. And I do encourage you, please try to use a physical Bible. I, I use my app too, but you know, I got Twitter and stuff popping up all the time too. So a little less distracting. Um, while you're opening, I'm just going to give some context where we've been. Uh, we've been in Ephesians for the first three chapters, and uh, the past several weeks we've kind of been walking through uh, the first three. And so the, the, the book of Ephesians is a letter. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, a group of people, two Christians. Uh, and Paul spent the first, remember, it's a letter. We have it in book and chapters and verses and all that, but it's, it was originally a letter. So the, he's spent the first part of his letter writing what we know is to be the first three chapters, really explaining the good news of the gospel to, um, to the Christians, but he's really just kind of listing out, describing out the good news of the gospel and how it relates to a believer. And so Ephesians chapter one shows us that God has spoken and acted in time that he is about to bring his, his secret plan to kind of the knowledge of Paul, but we know that secret plan to be um, the delivering of souls to his glory, Right? And then it builds in chapter 2, off of chapter 1, explains how the blessings described in chapter 1 are worked out in a world that's broken, a world that's marred by sin, a world that's marked by death. And then chapter 3, finally, we, we had last week, verses 1 to 13 in chapter 3, Paul explains this, this mystery of the gospel. This mystery that was kind of once unknown to the people, and he says, actually, that now we kind of know this side of having the Bible, that that secret to be that the, the plan of redemption, salvation, was not just meant for the ethnic Jewish people as they thought in the time. Instead, it was actually available to all types of people, to the far reaches of the map. So that brings us to our text this morning. We just read um, the last part of Ephesians 3, and this is really like the turning point in the text. This is kind of where he starts, Paul starts to kind of change what he's talking about, and he goes from kind of the what, kind of the, the, the academic on paper, what you need to know about the Christian, and then he kind of flips it to the application, uh, and starting in chapter 4, he goes to kind of the, okay, now what are you going to do with what I just told you? And so it really helps, I think, anytime we open up the Bible, right, we can open it up and go, this is kind of boring, but what do you, especially in a letter, a letter is being written to somebody, right, with, with specific problems, with specific circumstances, so it really helps to kind of know what Paul, who Paul is writing to. And so one of the main problems with the people that Paul's writing to, and, and spoiler alert, it still happens today in the church, is that this is a group of people, Paul is trying to implore these people to get off your 
sanctified seats. Bob won't have to bleep me out. And no, but really get moving, like get going. Here's all this knowledge that I've given you. Here's what God has done for you. Now go ahead and actually do it. Now go do. And unfortunately, I, I think um, a lot of the time, right, we hear in church, we hear in devotionals, we hear in Bible studies, like God, God gives us his power. He gives us a special blessing. We get to do all this stuff. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's kind of like Christians just kind of crank this stuff out on like one cylinder, right? It's like engine sputtering, engine smoking, just kind of, it doesn't seem very dynamic in the church. And, and, and unfortunately, I think... Uh, the average church is filled with a bunch of people show up on Sundays, they watch something, and then they go out and they live very mediocre Christian lives. And, and in some cases, less than mediocre. And so I, I, I don't think, being on, a, well, being on a church staff before and now kind of, again, right, the pastor and the staff sometimes wind up having to kind of shoulder the brunt of everything, and they spend time in staff meetings. They spend time praying. They're like, how do we get the people going? How do, we, how do we get people to go do? How do we get people to serve? How do we get people to believe that they are who God says they are? And so in response to that, I'd like to share something of kind of my heart, um, some things that have been on uh, what I've been thinking about, praying about in preparation for this sermon. And, and by the way, I don't think this is a question of organization. I don't think it's a question of we don't have enough programs. I don't think it's a question of administration. I think, in fact, I'm confident that it's instead the, a question of the individual attitude on behalf of each individual believer of what God asks him or her to do. And so as I prepared this sermon, I was constantly reminded about a problem that I used to face really when I first came to Christ um, in high school and then kind of more into my early college years. Um, and, and honestly, I still struggle with it now if, I, if I'm really honest with myself. And the problem is this, only believing certain promises in Scripture. And right, so some of the promises you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's going to do this for you, he's going to do this for you, God knows what you need, don't worry about it, he's going to provide, you've you got to have faith, you've got to pray, you've got to believe, you've got to act, but don't worry, God's got you, right? We kind of hear all these different promises throughout Scripture, like, that sounds fantastic, I'm going to go worry, Right? Oh, that sounds great that the Bible says that. I probably should believe it because it's there, but... Eh. Right? There, there are some promises in Scripture that we read that are very difficult for us to actually practically believe. And, and if I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of an insight into my brain as a 17 and 18-year-old. The one that I read, the one that was introduced to me that was the hardest for me to understand, ironically, was Ephesians 3.20. And there are really, really two words in this verse that mess it up. Yes, I just said Paul made a mistake. Two words in this verse that if they weren't there would make this much easier to handle, much easier to believe. So let's read it real quick. Verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think according to the power at work. Did I forget anything? Within us, or in us, depending on your translation. Yes, so those are the two words. Those are the two words that mess this verse up for the selfish Christian, right? And so if, if you just had within us chopped off, it's like the power at work, and you're like, fantastic, God's gonna go do what God's gonna do. But instead, what this verse is actually pointing to is the power in us. And so the question that you have to ask yourself is, okay, well, how do we get the power 
in us? Like, how does that practically work? And so that really was what I struggled with for a long time, was, was that ending of the, of the verse. And so when I was in college, I had this friend who I'd, I'd meet up like once every two weeks-ish. We'd challenge each other with verses ahead of time, and then we'd come together, we'd meet, we'd talk about them. And so he gave me this verse one time, and I was kind of new to it-ish, and, um, and he went, walked it you know, walk through with it with me. And then, and I was like, yeah, I understand it. I get it. I, I kind of get what Paul's talking about. I certainly get what God wants me to do. I really just don't understand how this practically plays out. And it wasn't until about a year later where I really started to, to study scripture, to understand how to, to actually, how to study scripture that I found it out. And I, this is a key when we're reading scripture, just a little nugget. You don't take a verse out of the Bible. Instead, you leave it in the Bible, and you find the meaning of that verse around the Bible. You leave it in there, and then you'll know what it means. So 3.20, Ephesians 3.20 is our focus verse this morning, but we're going to be looking at the whole paragraph, okay? 14 to 21. So that's where we're going to start, and we got to look at the entire thing, and hopefully, God willing, by the very end of this, that verse is just going to like fall on your lap, and you're going to understand it you're going to believe it. So this paragraph in Ephesians 14 to 21, Charles Spurgeon called the Christian ignition. The Christian ignition. So right, for chapter one, we have, I'm sorry, chapters one, two, and the first part of three at the very least, describes the power of a Christian, okay? So Paul, if you've read any of other, other letters of Paul, he asks a lot of a Christian, right? He challenges us, he exhorts us, he comforts us, but he's kind of like, like, you got, you got some stuff to go do, right? Instead, the beginning of Ephesians, the first three chapters, he, he doesn't challenge, he doesn't exhort. All he does is just say what we have. It's just a presentation of what God has given every single believer. He, he describes the engine. He describes the power plant of the believer. He's saying, this is who you are. You are blessed, okay? You have all these spiritual resources. You're loved, you're accepted, you have wisdom, you have knowledge, it's like the specs on an engine, right? You lift up the hood of a car, someone who really knows about it, they can detail everything all about it. He's listing the specs of an engine. Then in, next week, we're gonna get to it. Chapter four, he starts to go and describes, well, then what do you do once the engine's turned on, right? Where do you go? How do you use it? Here's the map, here's the path, here's the road, now go do. But somewhere between the description of the engine, one to the first half of three, and then the go do, the engine's gotta be flipped on, all right? So you gotta put the key in, you gotta turn that puppy over, and you gotta hear it humming before you can ever leave the garage. And so that's why at verses 14 to 21, Spurgeon calls the Christian ignition, and it comes to us in the form of a prayer. Paul's praying. All right, it's kinda like the Indianapolis 500. Anyone ever been there or watched it on TV, right? Paul's kind of praying, he's like, gentlemen, start your, right? He's like, Everyone's kind of standing there, ready to go, ready to hit the gas. He's like, here's what you got to know. Here's how you actually turn it on. And then you go. So something to keep in mind, by the way, is that when we read this paragraph, it's a sequence, okay? So it's a sequence of if-then statements. So it's like, do this in order that this may happen, that this may happen, that this may happen, that eventually this will result. And so that's why if you pluck verse 20 out of, out of the Bible, it's completely out of context, you can't understand what Paul's really getting at and the fullness of what he's getting at. And so I'm going to give you five steps for all you note takers. Five steps. These are not my five steps. These are Paul's five steps. But we're going to walk through Paul's prayer. These five steps to kind of turn that ignition on. 
And I've been praying for you guys all week, um, myself included, that this would get us going, that we would be able to not just hear and go, that sounds nice, but that we would actually believe that we have the kind of power that God says that we do, that we can turn that key over and we can start to have our spiritual engines humming. Amen? All right, so step one, here we go. Inner strength is the first step. That's the first thing Paul mentions. So verses 14 to 16, it all begins there. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. And we're going to go, okay, well, why, Paul? Why are you bowing your knees before the Father? For what purpose? Well, he says, because of who you are, because of your capabilities, because of your resources, because of the specs of your spiritual engine, because you have so much capacity, you have so much to offer the world because of what God has done in you, because you're connected to the power source, nothing of your own doing, but the fact that you're connected to God himself. And that's the reason, therefore, you hear that word a lot in the Bible, therefore, all of that, I pray that you get that ignition turned on. That's how he starts. So first step in turning the power on us to be strengthened, it says, in the inner being by the Holy Spirit. So practically how that looks out, you and I, we yield to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God empowers us in the inner being. And by the way, the inner being is not some like weird mystical word or anything. Very simple. The inner being is just kind of the inner you, right? There's two yous, the inner you and the outer you. Um, the inner being, the outer being, the in, your inside and your outside. And the inside is to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. That's its job. And practically, what that really looks like as far as the outpouring of when that happens is that you will have strength to conquer Satan. You'll have strength to conquer sin and the flesh and the world and whatever it is. You're going to have that spiritual vigor that it takes. You're going to have that spiritual stamina that a Christian has. And it's when you yield, it's when you submit to him, when he fills your life, when he dominates your life. And it's as, if, it's as if the Spirit of God gave us this, gave us the Bible as its training manual, and now the Holy Spirit's the one that's going to go help us actually implement what it says. So as a Christian yields to the Spirit, his inner being is strengthened to resist anything that the world throws at it. So that's step one, inner being, strong inner being. Step two, we see in verse 17, the first half of verse 17, through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Stop right there. So the second step I call the indwelling Christ. So once you're strengthened, step one, right? Inner being strengthened, you're gonna find, this is beautiful, you're gonna find that Christ dwells in your heart. And you say, wait a bit, Ben, I know my theology. I, I've gone through the CPC 101 class. You're gonna, you're, you're gonna, I know Christ dwells in my heart. I'm saved. I, I put my faith in Christ. Spirit of God, dwell. I don't need him dwelling a second time. Well, you'd be right to point that out, but that's not really what Paul's getting at. Instead, let's look at the word dwell. That's the, kind of the key word here. So we'll put, put the uh, slide up on the screen. The word dwell in the Greek, here's a little, little party trick. It's a Greek verb. And it's a compound verb, and it's the word katoikeo, and it's, it's, it's two words scrunched together. So the first word is oiko, which is the verb of oikos, which is house. So oiko is to be at home. Okay, and then kata, which is the other part of it, is, is down. So you put those things together, and the word literally means to be at home. It's this idea of, of total comfort. Like think of your happy place. Think of when you are just totally at home. All right, you guys, you have 10 seconds to get a view into my life, okay? No screenshots, no screen recording. Go ahead. 
This is me on my couch with my blanket and my cat, okay? Watching something on Netflix. That is my happy place. Some sweet old lady came up after me after the first service, was like, are you married? And I was like, I just put a picture of me and my cat on the screen. (laughs) No, I'm very much single, thank you. You can take that off. But it is the idea, it's the idea of total comfort. It is your, it is the happy place. But this is talking about God. And by the way, don't read what it's not saying. This is not saying that we dwell in Christ. Those are, that's other places in scripture. This is saying that Christ may settle down and dwell in our hearts. And so there's a point in every Christian's journey in life where we're individually saved, right? You repent of your sins, you believe the gospel, you've put your faith in Christ, and you're saved, instantaneously signed, sealed, delivered. But at the very same time, and I know this from my life, right when that moment happens, my life's still a mess. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And so what this is saying is that the the, the Holy Spirit, the power of God needs to clean your life up. For Christ to be settled down so you can experience him in a full way, he's got to do work. Work has to be done. And so just a quick reflection um, question. I wonder what's in your heart. I wonder what's in my heart that's keeping Christ from settling down that much more. The Spirit is the only one that can clean it out, not self-help books, not any YouTube video, nothing. The Holy Spirit is the one that cleans it out so that Christ may settle down in our hearts. There's an interesting little book. It's super short. Um, I'm not a reader, but super, super, super short. I highly suggest it. It's called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Munger. And it's a super helpful book. And it's, it's kind of a, a one long illustration of how of, and he takes the human heart and kind of uh, puts it to, to that of a house. And, and here comes Christ, right? And it's a guy in the illustration. But so Christ comes into this guy's life, right? He's saved. Um, uh, salvation occurs. And then uh, God's like, wow, this, this is a mess. <laughs> and you know, when you become a Christian and you put your faith in Christ, that's not the end, right? We don't, the climax is not salvation. That's, that's the beginning. And oftentimes once that occurs and, and the Holy Spirit gets to work on you, it's a painful process. Oftentimes it's a painful process. It's like, a, like an episode of Hoarders, right? You go into like the storage, you're like, <laughs> you just got to get rid of all the stuff. It's not supposed to be there. So in this analogy, Christ uh, enters the, the front door of this house, right? This guy's heart. He enters the front door and he goes, beelines it right to the library. And the library is the control room. And he kind of starts thumbing through all of the titles on the, on the shelf. And he's going, well, this is cred. This is evil. This is bad. Nope, we got to get rid of everything. So he takes the library, burns all the books. And he goes, we need to give you something new. And so instead, when all the books are off the shelf, he gives us this. And he says, try putting this on your shelf. Try giving this one a go. And so from the library, then he goes into the dining room. The dining room is the place of appetites, right? It's where we eat. And so Christ sits down at the dining room table and he says, I want to see, I want to see what you desire. And then he thinks and he looks and he observes and he goes, oh, that's what you desire. You desire the things of the world. You desire the things of the flesh of lust. Oh, you're money hungry. Oh, you, you, you chase prestige and pride. Well, we need to do something about that. So he gives a different menu, all the things of scripture. He says, I want you to eat the righteous things. I want you to eat the good things. 
By the way, I just did the TB12 diet for 30 days, I know you can tell, and I had to get rid of most of the stuff in my, in my uh, pantry. And uh, it, was, it was good, but it was tough, right? When you get a new menu of something to, to, to chew on, especially things that you loved for a long time, it's a, it's a painful process. And so he goes from the dining room, then he goes to the living room. And that's where you have fellowship. That's where you meet people. That's where you sit down and talk with people. That's where you share. And honestly, if we're super honest with ourselves, that's where we leave Jesus when we neglect him. We leave him there. And we say, well, you know, if it fits in my calendar, then I'll go spend time with you. You know, only when it makes sense, then I will sit down and make time. And instead, the Lord goes, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to smooth out the carpet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to straighten the lampshade a bit. I'm going to get everything going. I'm going to put the Bible on the table, a coffee table. I'm going to invite you in to sit and have some time with me. And it says the guy in the illustration goes and sits down and just has a conversation, has spends some good quality time, and, and it describes it as good. And then lastly, he goes, or sorry, second to lastly, at least, he goes down to the workshop, right? He's given this guy just immense skill, master craftsman. He goes down to the workshop, all these tools, skills, talents, and abilities, and he's found out that this guy, it just makes toys, like frivolous toys. And God goes, well, let's, let's get rid of th- th- those things. Let's get rid of that plan. How about we build some stuff for the kingdom? How about we build some stuff that's going to edify you, edify the people around you, glorify me. And then right when the house is ready to go, everything looks tidy throughout the house, you get that smell, right? And there's a horrible odor coming from the closet. It just stinks real bad. And, and, and Jesus goes, well, what's, what's over there? What's, what's in that? And the guy goes, look, like seriously, like I've given you, I've given you everything. I've given you the workshop, I've given you the dining. That's my closet, okay? Like that's my two by four little closet. Seriously, like you can't possibly want what's in there too. Well, those are the things, those are the super personal things that you don't want to give up. Those are the things that you don't want anyone else to see. And, and, and Jesus says, well, it's, it's not over. I, I got to see it. I got to clean that stuff up too. And then, man, when he does that, when he does clean that stuff up, boy, does he settle down. And it's beautiful. And that's really what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 3. And so if you're yielding to the Spirit, if you're not walking by the flesh, if you're Spirit-filled, as a result, you are going to be strengthened. And you're going to be strengthened in your inner being, and that strength is going to translate into that spiritual vigor, that stamina, that will conquer sin. It's a declarative word. You will conquer sin. And the result is going to be that Christ will settle down in your heart and your fellowship with him and other people too, but especially him. It's going to be good. It's going to be sweet. And so that brings us to step three, incomprehensible love. So we have inner strength, we have indwelling Christ, we have incomprehensible love. And when Christ settles down in your life, He transforms you into love. Look at verse 17, the end of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He means that love is not peripheral. He means that love is not a fringe virtue. It's not something that's hit and miss now and then. Uh, Love is not a minor detail in the life of a Christian. 
It's an essential root. It is the essential root and ground that you are, that defines who you are. It defines him. It has to define you. So when Christ dominates your life, your chief character will be an outpouring of love. If you know anybody who's filled by the Holy Spirit, who walks by the Spirit, who is filled with the fullness of God, you will immediately recognize that something is different about them. And generally that difference is a godly biblical love. So as you are established on this solid ground of love, this way of life, this deep insecure love, the world's gonna throw stuff at you. You're gonna have issues. You're gonna have temptations. Satan's gonna do a work on you. But you are going to be rooted so firm in love that you won't be shaken. And then in verse 18, it says that you actually, it goes one step further, it says you're actually gonna comprehend it. That's kind of the, maybe even the chief difference. He says, you're gonna comprehend its breadth and its length and its height and its depth, and you're going to know the love of God. Not just, I've heard about it, not just, I probably should believe it because it's in the Bible. You will know it through every fiber of who you are. And it says even, even further, that which surpasses understanding and knowledge. So in other words, you're going to know what you can't know, right? You're going to know what can't be explained. The only way to know it is to experience it, okay? I'm a, I, I, well, I got a jazz minor in college. I, I love jazz. I'm a jazz musician. Some people like jazz. Some people don't like jazz. It's kind of like jazz, okay? So just walk with me with this analogy. So one time, like this guy went up to, uh, this guy who didn't like jazz goes up to a famous trumpet player, Louis Armstrong, and he goes, Louis, explain to me jazz, and Louis's like, uh, man, if I got to explain it, you ain't got it. That's kind of how love is. If I got to explain it, if someone's got to explain it, you ain't got it. You can try to describe it, but to, to explain its every meaning, to explain what it does to you, it's an inexplicable feeling. It's an inexplicable reality. And so the promise here, what Paul's trying to say is when Christ settles down and is at home in your life, you will experience this love that words cannot even begin to express. And that brings us to step four, verse 19. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Just take like maybe 10 seconds so you don't get a headache. Like try to just try to like think about that. Like, don't hurt yourself, but like try to explain, like you will have the fullness of God, not a piece, not a sliver, not a chip. Like you will have the fullness of God. When we are on the path that we ought to be on, when we're yielding to the Holy Spirit, when we're following what God has for us, we will be filled up with the fullness of God. It says right here. And what does that mean? Well, very simply, that just means you're gonna be like him your life slowly but surely is going to start looking like him, right? So the Bible describes Jesus was the fullness of deity, right? He was the fullness of the Godhead. We weren't, this is not a promise that we're gonna become God. This is a promise that we're gonna be like him, his essence. We're gonna know all of this. We're gonna have even the knowledge and wisdom of God as far as we're capable, 
And so here it is. Like we're, here's the explosion into verse 20, okay? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So he just got done illustrating for five verses. Here's it. Here's what you got. Here's what I'm praying for you to do. And he explodes and says, now to him who is able to do it. It is a very, very foolish thing. It's a very ignorant thing. And I do use this word very sparingly. It's a faithless thing to walk your Christian life thinking that you are incapable or ill-equipped when you have all of this at your disposal. And I please take this with, with a loving challenge and a little bit of a kick in the butt. And by the way, this is for me too. If you're not seeing the power of God in your life, it's because you're not filled with the fullness of God. Now, before you start throwing tomatoes at me, I'm gonna flush that out quick. If you're not filled with the fullness of God, it's because you're not rooted and grounded in love. If you're not filled with Christ, because you're not strong in your inner being, right? Walk this prayer backwards. It's a sequence, remember? So I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you aren't experiencing what this is talking about, what Paul is praying about, if you're not experiencing the fullness of the power of God in your life, there's a flaw somewhere in the sequence. And through prayer and through obedience and through yielding to the spirit, that can be fixed. That can be righted. And, and here's like the greatest word in scripture, right? I just kind of gave the bad news. But when you do go through this particular path, when you are obedient, when you are yielding to the spirit, Guys, I promise that you are going to see things happen in your life that you had no expectation of happening. When trials come your way, when temptation comes into your life, when Satan is doing whatever he can do to get you pried away from God, you're gonna have a strength that you never knew was there. When ministry opportunities, when evangelism opportunities come your way, you're going to have a confidence. You're going to have a strength that you did not know that you had. Strong inner being, indwelling Christ, incomprehensible love, infinite fullness. And you say, but why, why would God, why would God want, why would God want this? Why would God do this? Why would God want me to be so powerful? Well, that brings us to our last step. Step five, matchless potential. Verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So why would God do all this? Why would he give so much power to such, to you, to me? Well, the answer found other places in scripture as well, but certainly here, in order that he might display his glory through his church. Guys, evangelism is not tied up in our tactics. It's not tied up in our cleverness. It's not tied up in our sales pitch ability, even though you got an MBA from business school. It's not tied up in anything that you can manufacture. 
that's connected to a power, our power, which is connected to the power bank of all of these spiritual resources that God gives every single believer. And, and I had this note in my, in, my, in my notes for just the 930 service that kind of dogged him for me and the older crowd. I'm, not, I'm gonna amend it a bit for this crowd. For all of you in the service, age is not an excuse. These guys hear it all, these guys hear it all the time. Age is an excuse, younger, older, it's no excuse. Guys, I've had the privilege of knowing so many of you in this church for so many years. The young guys, the older folks, everyone in between. God has granted so many of you a bank of knowledge and a bank of wisdom, the spiritual vigor that I can, it, I've been the direct recipient of so many times. You have so much to offer the world based on what God has given you. You just gotta turn it on. You gotta yield to the Holy Spirit and let him turn. So to end, my prayer for you going forward, a challenge, is that you would be to the glory of God, that you would bring him praise and honor and admiration and respect from the people outside of these four walls that when you go live your life to the people who don't know who he is, that when they see you live, when they see these spiritual resources being used to their full potential based on what God is doing in your life, their only explanation for what's going on is the fact that he is good, that he is mighty, and that he is a powerful saving God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you would be so gracious to offer these kinds of resources to us. And God, this morning we, we offer our humble thanks because of the prayer that Paul prayed that you say over and over again that you are eager to answer. So God, I pray for the people who are Christ followers through those who, who have made a commitment of their life to follow you, God, that they would have their spiritual engines turned on. God, that they would see untapped potential in their life based on what you are granting them through your Holy Spirit. So God, thank you for all of this. I thank you um, for what you've done, for who you are, your character. You're rooted and grounded in love. Therefore, we are to be as well. God, help us understand and how to use these resources. God, and we will praise you and we will thank you for whatever you plan to do with our lives. God, may we be ready. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Carmel Presbyterian Church, visit our website at www.carmelpres.org or any of our social media pages. Have a blessed rest of your week.